as you get comfortable in your seats, let me remind you of another kind of seating that you have been given by grace. Uh, we hear about that in Ephesians 2, 6. God has made us alive. He has raised us up with Christ and has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Friends, if this is true of us, then we must set our minds on things above, where our Savior is. And so as we continue to worship our God who gives us eternal life in his Son, let's now pay attention to his life-giving word. So please turn with me in your copy of God's word to Daniel chapter 12. And let me remind you, as I did last week, that Daniel chapters 10 to 12 constitute one final apocalyptic vision. And this vision, full of symbols and metaphors, was given to Daniel so that he and future generations of God's people like you and me could have hope. So we need to hear these words in order to prepare ourselves for trials that will come upon us before the Lord Jesus returns for his people. Beloved, God had you and me in mind when he gave this vision to Daniel. We see this truth in Romans 15 verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So let's ask the Lord for his help as we look to these concluding verses of the vision in Daniel chapter 12. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would now give us understanding according to your word so that we might abound in hope. Teach us to fix our eyes on our risen and resurrected Savior, the ballast of our assurance, so that we might be comforted in our present trials and prepared for future ones. Remind us, O Lord, that you hold our days in your hands and not even a hair on our heads will fall apart from your express command. Hold fast to us, O Lord, so that your people may endure till the very end. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I don't remember exactly when or where I saw it. It might have been in a Christian bookstore or someplace like it, but it was a picture. Uh, an aerial shot of a little fishing boat in a vast ocean. And the line beneath that picture read, O God, thy sea is so great, and my boat is so small. Later I looked it up and discovered that this was the first line in a poem by a man named Winfred Ernest Garrison. And it goes like this, Thy sea, O God, so great, my boat so small. It cannot be that any happy fate will me befall, save as thy goodness opens paths for me through the consuming vastness of the sea. Thy winds, O God, so strong, so slight my sail. How could I curb and bit them on the long and sultry trail? Unless thy love were mightier than the wrath of all the tempests that beset my path. So you see, the point of the poem is to give us a big view of God and his power so that we will view our trials rightly. And what we get in that poem 
is the same theology that we get in the book of Job. Good or bad, God is sovereign over it all. Friends, we need to be regularly reminded of how big, how great our Heavenly Father is. The prophet Isaiah does this as well when he speaks of the new exodus, the time when God will restore his people from spiritual exile. And he says this of God, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. That's all of you, grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. That's Isaiah 40, 22 to 24. Now when Daniel was given that vision of what would happen in those troubled 62 weeks, all of those wars between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, it was made clear to him, wasn't it, that, that God was sovereign over the rise and fall of those rulers. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, and God blows on them, and they're gone from history, gone like the wind. God even assures Daniel that the final persecutor of God's people, the Antichrist, will also be done away with, with no one to help him. We saw that in chapter 11, verse 45. Now, verses 36 to 45 in chapter 11, as we saw last week, are no longer speaking of Antiochus Epiphanes. We know that because verse 35, look at verse 35, ends by speaking about God's people being purified till the time of the end. That phrase, time of the end, acts like a time marker, sort of drawing a line in the sand after that verse. It, it catapults us to the very end of time where we are now introduced to a king who is very much like Antiochus, only worse. This king is the last ruler of an earthly kingdom who will oppose the worship of God's people and persecute them until Christ returns and destroys him. This king is that little horn that we saw in Daniel 7. And you can see how these visions are, are linked. In Daniel chapter 7, the fourth beast is not just Rome, but Rome and beyond. Uh, we know this because in chapter 7, when does the judgment of the little horn take place? It takes place at the very end of time, when the saints will receive the kingdom. And that's how we know that this is an end time ruler. And the fourth beast is a forerunner of every other kingdom that follows it, carrying the same spirit of the godless Roman Empire. Chapter 7 also tells us that the saints will be given over into the hand of this last tyrant for time, times, and half a times. You see that in Daniel 7.25. Now that phrase, time, times, and half a time properly refers to three and a half years. But remember how numbers are used in apocalyptic literature. They're symbolic. Seven years would be a time of fullness and completeness. And three and a half is half of seven. It refers to a limited or relatively brief time of tribulation. Jesus speaks about this time in Matthew 24, 21 to 22. He says, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. 
it will be cut short by the return of Jesus to destroy the Antichrist by the breath of his mouth. This is the ruler that Paul refers to as the man of lawlessness or the man of destruction in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. Now in Daniel chapter 11, verses 36 to 45, all that the Antichrist will do in the future is described using images from the past, using ancient geography. Remember, this is an apocalyptic vision. And so the Antichrist is portrayed as the king of the north who makes war with those who oppose him and his opposers are represented by the king of the south. He will come into the glorious land, the text says. That doesn't mean he will literally take over the land of Israel or the modern nation of Israel. Remember, this is symbolic. It's talking about the future using imagery from the past. The text also says he will make friends with Edom and Moab and Ammon. These were Israel's enemies in the past. They didn't exist when Daniel saw this vision, nor do they exist now. And so this is a way of using Antiochus and all his exploits as a prototype or pattern to describe the work of the Antichrist in the future. This tyrant will set his eyes against God's people, against Christians. He will oppose the church. He will oppose worship. He will side with those who oppose the church. Brothers and sisters, because Christ has fulfilled all the promises of the Old Testament, remember that God's people are no longer defined by physical circumcision, but by spiritual circumcision, by the new birth and faith in the gospel. What matters now is not whether you are a citizen of Jerusalem, but a citizen of the new Jerusalem. Or as Paul puts it in Galatians 4.26, the Jerusalem above, she is our mother. We are her children. So all these types in the Old Testament, the people of God, Israel, the temple, the sacrifices, even the promised land, they all find their fulfillment in Christ. So coming into the glorious land means attacking the people who will inherit the land, namely the church. And so it is the church composed of both redeemed Jews and Gentiles, people from every nation. Those people, they, the church, will face an intense period of persecution prior to the return of Christ. And this is what we'll get to see in these verses in Daniel chapter 12. And so as we consider this passage, I want you to see that the Lord gives us three truths that we ought to arm ourselves with in order to persevere till the end. Three truths. Number one, the Lord will deliver his people. Number two, the Lord is in perfect control of our trials. And number three, the Lord will reward our inheritance, our, our endurance. So the Lord will deliver his people. The Lord is in perfect control of our trials. And number three, the Lord will reward our endurance. Let's consider that first point, how God will deliver his people. Look at verse 1. At that time <clears throat> shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. Now, when he says at that time, what time is he talking about? He's referring to the time of the end. Look at verse 40 of Daniel 11. This is the time when the Antichrist will war against his enemies. At the time of the end, he will turn his rage towards the church, just as Antiochus turned his rage against God's old covenant people. At this time, he will set his mind to destroy many. And this, of course, coincides 
with Daniel chapter 7 verse 21. He will make war with the saints and prevail. Or Daniel 7 verse 25. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High. It is at that time Michael the archangel who represents God's people will arise in battle. Remember we saw this in chapter 8 that when wicked rulers rage against God's people on earth, angels battle it out against the forces of evil in order to protect God's people, to ensure that God's purposes are carried out. Look at the text. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. In other words, Daniel is told that the distress that God's people will face will be unprecedented and this fits with what Jesus says about the future suffering of his saints doesn't it Matthew 24 21 for then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now so Daniel is being told that the future end time suffering of God's people will far outstrip the suffering and trials that they will experience under Greece or Rome but then we hear these words of hope. Look at the text. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Not every Israelite. Not everyone who calls himself a Christian. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Friends, this book is the book of life. These are the names of all those people whom the Father has set his love upon, whom the Son died for, and whom the Spirit makes alive. This is the list of the names of the citizens of the new Jerusalem. This is God's membership directory of his household. You know, to the Jews in Daniel's time, these names would have represented those who loved the Lord those who kept his covenant and trusted in the promises that spoke of his coming Messiah. People like Abel and Abraham and Jacob and Sarah and Rahab and, and even Daniel and many more like them. Now just because this passage speaks of a book doesn't mean that God has an actual book in which he needs to write as though he's forgetful. Now remember this is apocalyptic imagery. The book here refers to God's intimate knowledge of his own people, those who will be with him eternally, those who will endure to the end by faith and obedience. These are the people who are described in chapter 11, verse 32, as those who know their God and stand firm in the midst of trials. Now, in one sense, this is what we get to see in the book of Daniel, don't we? We get to see in the lives of Daniel and his friends what it looks like to stand firm in the face of overwhelming trials and fearsome tyrants. Beloved, we don't know when and in what form this persecution will come. But we must be prepared. Because on that day, the only thing that will matter is whether your name is in that book or not. That's the only thing that will give you hope and comfort. If your name is in that book, you will be delivered. That's a promise. But it's not enough to say you're a Christian, is it? 
Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. If we are merely hearers of his word and not doers of his word, we deceive ourselves. If we profess to know God, but deny him by our works, then we really do not know God. You see, on that day, it will be evident who the true children of God are. You see, trials have a way of sifting the wheat from the chaff. We see this in the parable of the sower, don't we? There are those who hear the word and they immediately spring up and we think, oh, revival, great. And it looks like they're believers. But when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, they fall away. Demonstrating that they were never really rooted in Christ to begin with. For if they were rooted in him, they would have been nourished by him to endure. Beloved, do not glory in your accomplishments here in this age. It won't matter when that fiery trial comes to test you. But rather rejoice in this, that your names are written in heaven. Glory in the cross of Christ alone. Marvel at his grace. Be in awe of his power to nourish the faith of his saints because of which we can reach that heavenly shore together. Invest your time in growing in godliness. One of the great gifts the Lord has given to us in Christ is one another. So encourage each other in your faith every day. Read scripture together and reflect on whether you are walking in obedience to Christ. Strengthen your spiritual muscles for the day of great trial. Now deliverance will come to God's people when the Antichrist unleashes his fury. But notice how it comes. Notice how deliverance comes. Look at what full and final restoration of God's people looks like. Remember, this is what Daniel has been praying about. So this is what deliverance would look like, the full and final re restoration of God's people. Verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Restoration hope is what Daniel has been praying for. Restore us, O Lord. Just as you rescued us out of Egypt, do it again. He's praying for a second exodus. Restoration hope for the people of God is meant to culminate in the resurrection. Did you see that in that verse? Restoration hope for the people of God is meant to culminate in the resurrection. This is taught in the Old Testament. Abraham knew that the point of the promise was not meant to culminate in an earthly inheritance, but a heavenly one, the new earth. Listen to Hebrews 11, 13 to 16. These all died in faith, men like Abraham, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire 
a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. If you have this hope, God is not ashamed to call you his people. He looks at you and he says, my people. These are my people. He's not ashamed of you. This is the hope that Abraham had. And Daniel is told that there will be many who perish. Now the word many in Hebrew is not like the English word many, but refers to a great multitude. So the NIV says multitudes will rise. God will resurrect the dead. And in that multitude, there will be a separation, a divine separation. Did you see that in the text? Some will rise to eternal life in the presence of God. These are the saints who know God and love him and his word even more than their own lives. And some will be raised to shame and everlasting contempt. Notice that the shame and reproach is what? Eternal, everlasting. Beloved, the Bible does not teach annihilationism. Do you know what annihilationism means? That there is no eternal and everlasting torment in hell. You know, God will just exterminate you, extinguish you. You'll go poof. You're snuffed out of existence. It's not what this text says. No, Jesus says that hell will be everlasting and conscious torment. Daniel says the shame and reproach is everlasting. You know, this text implies that when the Antichrist rises to persecute God's people, some will be martyred. Not all will be delivered from the lion's den like Daniel was. There will be some who, like those saints in Hebrews 11, will pay dearly with their lives, but they will die in faith, knowing that they will rise again. These are the people of whom this world is not worthy. That's what Hebrews 11.38 says. Now, I want you to remember that. Remember that divine assessment. Don't forget that in the midst of your suffering. The world may oppose you. The world may silence you. The world may persecute you. To them, you are nothing more than a problem. Someone who is unworthy and dispensable, but not to God. He loves you. You are precious to him. His son purchased you with his own blood to God, this world is not worthy to have you, his faithful people. Think about that when you're suffering. Don't you just love it how God speaks of us? Not ashamed to be their God. And this world is not worthy of you. He has prepared something better for his people, his faithful people. Beloved, a day is coming when Jesus will return to receive his bride and judge the world. Jesus said in John 5, 28 to 29, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Brothers, the most important task that we can do in order to prepare ourselves for the persecution that is to come is to give ourselves to the study of God's word. You know, this is why Daniel recorded these visions, so that his people could read them, so that they could trust God's promise of resurrection 
so that they could remain resolute in the face of persecution. The more we know of the greatness of our God, the more we hear of his promises, the more we will fear him and love him. It is that godly fear that will help us overcome the fear of suffering and trials. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Beloved, we need not fear death because we know one who has overcome death. Christ Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. And because he rose, those who are in him will rise also. This is our great hope. And to believe these scriptures and to act accordingly is to become truly wise. Which is why those who truly know their God are described here in the same way that they are described in chapter 11 as wise. Notice their eternal blessedness. Verse 3. And those who are wise, they will be raised to everlasting life. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness. So the faithful are not individualistic with respect to their faith. What do they do? They encourage others to greater obedience in the midst of suffering and persecution. You know, I think that's a rebuke to some of us who like to avoid people who are suffering. Just because that's an awkward situation. The wise are those who encourage others in the midst of persecution. They will shine like the brightness of the sky above. They will be like the stars forever and ever. Now what do these visual metaphors mean? Brightness of the sky, shining like the stars. It means that they will be exalted in glory. You see, the humiliation of God's people in persecution will lead to their glorification in the resurrection. Our path to glory is the way of the cross. From suffering to glory, just like our Savior. Beloved, these are precious promises of hope. And this is why Daniel is told to do this. Look at verse 4. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Now what's going on there? Is the angel telling Daniel to keep all this information top secret? It may sound like that. But what Daniel is being told is to preserve these words. You see, in ancient times when somebody sealed a document, it was done to preserve it and to authenticate it. Uh, we know this because of what Jeremiah does in Jeremiah 32. He goes out, buys land, and then he seals the deed of purchase with its terms and conditions in the presence of witnesses. But then he also has an open copy for reference, and he preserves both of them in an earthen vessel. Daniel is being told to preserve these words of hope, this message of deliverance through resurrection, these covenant promises of everlasting life and glory. God will fully and finally restore his people and not even death can hinder his purposes. Nothing will be able to separate his people from his love. God's people will need to read and hear these words and be instructed in them so that they can trust in God when trouble comes. And praise God that Daniel did that. You know, which is why we're here this morning. 
hearing these very words so that through the encouragement of the scriptures, we can have hope. You know, the importance of doing this is highlighted in the next line. Look at the next line. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. You know, at the time of the end, in the last days, the angel says that people will be anxiously busy in accumulating information. Knowledge will increase at an incredible rate, but it will be in vain. You see, this passage has echoes of Amos 8.12, when Amos predicts a famine of hearing God's word, and he says, people shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east, they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. And this is consistent with Paul says about the last days. He urges Timothy to preach the word in 2 Timothy 4, 3-4, for this reason, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. And having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Beloved, if we are going to be strengthened in our faith and hope, we need to consistently and regularly give ourselves to the study of God's word. Now that you have heard the entire sermon series on Daniel, go back and reread it slowly. Soak in its truths. Let this book inform you how you ought to view the world. Let it inform you how you view your trials and, and live in it. This world is our Babylon. Let God's word be the lens through which you see the seemingly chaotic events that transpire every day so that you can rest in his sovereign care for you. And that brings us to our second point. Here's the second truth we need to hear in order to persevere till the end. Number two, the Lord is in perfect control of our trials. Look at verses five to six. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, two other angels, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. You know, this reminds us of the location of the vision. Remember that Daniel is standing on the bank of the Tigris River and the entire course of world events that he sees is described as a raging river. You remember kings will overflow and pass through, armies will be swept away, even the Antichrist is described as overflowing and passing through the territory of his enemies. This is the river of history that's flowing through. But Daniel sees God's angels on either side as though keeping guard on the flow of history itself. Verse 6, And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. So this was the man whom Daniel saw in chapter 10. This was an appearance of God himself, if you remember. And even though the angels stand watching, this one is above it all. He has all authority. And the question is, is not directed to God's ministering angels, but to the man in linen. And the question is asked, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? Now remember that Daniel is being told about the time of the end, when the Antichrist will wage war against God's people. It's the time when Michael will arise. He's being told about an intense period of distress. And Daniel wants to know, how long, O Lord? To which the man in linen responds with a promise. Look at verse 7. And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever. 
You know, this is what someone does when they take an oath, a promise. And since the one who lives forever is God, and there is no one greater than him, that would mean that this man, who is an appearance of God, is swearing by himself. This is an unshakable oath that God is in perfect control over this period of time. And he promises that it would be for time, times, and half a time. Properly speaking, that's three and a half years, but you know better. This is half of seven, which means it's a symbolic way of speaking of a limited but intense period of tribulation. But it's under the watchful eyes of God. And he's going to bring it to an end. This is how numbers are used in apocalyptic literature. Friends, in every culture, there are numbers that carry symbol-laden meaning for its people because of the past, because of their history. So to the Indian, 1947 means freedom. To the American, 9-11 means terror. And the very mention of those numbers you know, conjures up images of planes crashing into buildings and people falling to their deaths. Similarly, the phrase time, times, and half a times equals three and a half years, brings to the Israelite mind that intense spirit of suffering under the beastly Antiochus Epiphanes, which lasted literally for three and a half years. And so that number is now symbolically used. Daniel is being told that it will be brief and intense. That's how long it will be. And he's given an unshakable, unchangeable word that the Lord will be sovereign over it. Beloved, we are now living in a fairly peaceful time. I admit that the last two years haven't been easy, but you and I can both agree that it was nothing compared to what our brothers and sisters are facing in parts of India and in China and in Sudan and North Korea and many other places. And here we are told there's something worse that's coming. And beloved, the only thing that's big enough to steady our feeble souls our frightened and feeble souls in the midst of the storm is Christ. Is Christ our sure and steady anchor? You know, if this sounds frightening and unsettling to you, then know this. That when the waves of suffering rise, when the winds of trial and pain beat upon your life, and you feel like you're drowning, remember who your Savior is. Remember that the winds and the waves still obey his voice. The one who calmed the storm for his frightened disciples will also bring this storm of persecution to an end. Have faith in your Savior because he cares for you. You know, if you trust in his nail-pierced hands, if you see your Father's gracious heart, then you will see his smiling face even through the darkest of clouds. But then as comforting as it is to hear that the Lord is in control of this time and that it won't last a second more than what he intends, Daniel also hears something troubling. It will be for a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. Daniel is told that this period of tribulation will last till the point when the strength of God's people will be shattered. How do you think Daniel would have felt when he heard that? He would have thought, Lord, I, I, I thought this was heading towards restoration. 
How does it sound to you? There's certainly nothing here that suggests that the world will become more Christianized. There's nothing here that suggests that the world is going to end with some sort of climate change apocalypse. No, the end will come when the Antichrist turns the church into his punching bag. Then the end will come. So how do you feel knowing that when the Antichrist comes, the powers of darkness will prevail over the saints and many Christians will be martyred. Oh, beloved, don't be dismayed. Don't be. This is the moment when we must put our hope in the God who raises the dead. You see, God does his best work when the world thinks that it has won. That's when he does his best work. When the power of God's people is shattered, the text says, then all these things will be finished. And we know what that means, don't we? What does Daniel 11.45 say? Yet he, the Antichrist, will come to his end with no one to help him. Or Daniel 7.26-27, he will be destroyed and the kingdom given to the saints. Or 2 Thessalonians 2.8, the Lord Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. When the powers of darkness think that they have done their worst to the church, when it has brought the church to its knees, when it looks like the church cannot take any more beatings and is as good as extinct, the heavens will be opened and the Son of Man will descend in glory with his mighty angels in flaming fire to inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. That's 2 Thessalonians 1.8. If you thought that was awesome, listen to Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, many crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. See, when our king returns, he will destroy his enemies and he will raise his people from the dead, destroying the last enemy, death itself. On that day, beloved, the church will stand victorious raised with new resurrection bodies in the glorious kingdom of Christ, the new earth, his everlasting kingdom, where righteousness reigns. If you're a Christian, you call yourself a Christian, and you read your Bible, you should recognize this pattern. Our God is the God of great reversals. Our God is the God of great reversals. He frustrates the wisdom of the world, and he makes a mockery out of the, of the powers of darkness. You know, the place 
where we can see this most clearly is the crucifixion of our Savior. When the Son of God incarnate was crucified for the sins of his people, what could have been more despicable and cruel and vile than that? But let me make something clear. Yes, the cross was brutal and torturous and shameful. And yes, the Jews and Romans put to death a guiltless man. But what makes this the greatest act of evil this world has ever seen lies in this fact. That the creator God took on flesh and entered into the world to save his rebellious creatures and they put him to death. Saying, we don't want anything to do with you. Imagine spitting on the face of the one who holds your breath. Imagine nailing the hands of the one who holds every molecule in your body together. Jesus went to the cross to die as a sacrifice, to bear the sins of his people as a substitute, to give his life as a ransom for many. He did this for all who would repent of their sins and put their trust in his saving death. This is the one of, of whom the book of Daniel speaks of, the anointed one who in the fullness of time, that climactic 70th week, comes to atone for the sins of his people and to bring in his reign of everlasting righteousness. See, Jesus is the conquering son of man, that stone that will smash all the kingdoms of this world and set up an everlasting kingdom. Isaiah tells us that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Friends, this is the good news of how sinners are reconciled to a holy God and saved from his judgment. There is no good news apart from the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you have not put your trust in him, then turn away from your sins and call on the name of Jesus. Believe on him and be saved from the wrath to come. Listen to what Jesus says, John 6, verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You know, at the cross, the world thought that they had shattered the power of the Holy One. But on the third day, God performed the greatest reversal this world has ever seen. Jesus Christ rose from the dead with a new resurrection body in order to give everlasting life to those who believe. By pouring his life unto death, he reverses our death sentence. And while the church awaits its greatest trial, we can be confident that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise up his children and bring us home to glory. See, the God who demonstrated his great power in the weakness of the cross will also raise us up when we are at our weakness, are at our weakest, when our power is shattered, when we are powerless. Therefore, brothers, press on. 
press on, as Paul says in Philippians 3.14, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The Lord will reward your endurance of faith. Look at verses 8 to 9. That brings us to our third point. The Lord will reward our endurance. I heard, but I did not understand. So if you find it hard to process all this information, take heart. Daniel found it hard too. Then I said, O oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? So Daniel wants to know more about the end, when and how all these things would play out. But then he's told this, verse 9. He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. In other words, preserve these words, Daniel, for they will only make sense as God unfolds history in the future. Much of this will be understood in that future time of fulfillment. Now, beloved, again, I want you to rejoice because we are in that time when Christ has fulfilled all and we can put together all of God's revelation together and see how it culminates in the person and work of Jesus. The Lamb has opened the seal, so to speak. And we, His people, can understand these glorious truths because of the Spirit of Christ. And Peter tells us that the Old Testament prophets, like Daniel, they knew that they were writing these things in order to serve God's people beyond their time. Listen to 1 Peter 1.12. It was revealed to them, those Old Testament prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven things into which angels Long to look. We certainly saw a lot of that in Daniel, didn't we? Angels wondering, what, what is going on? And this is why what we hold in our hands is not to be locked up in your cupboards. It's not to be locked up for the future, but to be understood and applied to our lives now as we are in the time of the end. And it, that's why it's no wonder that we hear quite the opposite from another angel in the book of Revelation. Revelation 22 verse 10, listen to this. This angel says, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. You see that? But notice what Daniel is called to do in light of the coming persecution. He is told to what? Go your way. You see that in verse 13 as well. Go your way till the end. In other words, He's being told to live his life, to walk faithfully before God. Brothers, God wants us to know that the Antichrist is coming, that there will be an intense period of persecution so that it won't take us by surprise. But he wants us to do more than just know. He wants us to look beyond that to fix our eyes on the glory that will be revealed at the coming of Jesus, to set our minds on things above, on the resurrection of the saints from the dead, on the glorious new heavens and the new earth. And in light of all those things, in light of the glory of the everlasting kingdom of the Son of Man, He wants you to go your way. Live faithfully now. See, that's what eschatology is for. Eschatology is for discipleship. It's for now. Knowing what's coming ought to stir your hearts to pursue greater obedience now. To pursue holiness in the present. 
the angel tells Daniel that in those days, leading up to this intense period of persecution, two things will happen. Look at verse 10. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. None of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. Those who know God and trust in their Savior, those who have been made alive will put on the mind of Christ. They will give themselves to God's word. They will pursue a life of holiness by faith, in community, encouraging one another. Even in the midst of suffering, they will purify themselves. The church of Jesus Christ will make herself ready for her bridegroom and she will not give herself to another. But she will wait defiantly for her Savior. Oh, beloved, everything that God providentially orders in your life, you know, that irritating boss, that fussy child, the annoying traffic, constant health problems, the wicked culture around us, the troubling marriage, the coming Antichrist, all of this, is for your purification and preparation. But those who do not know God, the wicked, will act according to their nature, wickedly. They will not understand the times because they won't have insight into God's word. The wise will understand. They will know what to do. They will know what it will cost them. And this fits with what the New Testament teaches us about how we should live in light of the future coming kingdom. 2 Peter 3, 11-12, Peter says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, he's speaking of the passing away of this present earth, what sort of people ought you, be, ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting and hastening the coming of the day of God? You see, to Daniel, all of this was in the distant future, but we are now in the last days. The last days. See, the last days is a phrase that is used in the New Testament to describe an indefinite period of time between the first and the second comings of Christ. So take a look at that handout in your bulletin and look at the line right at the bottom. Gives you a description of the last days. It's that indefinite period of time between the first and second comings of Jesus. So the New Testament divides all of time into two ages. There is this present evil age and the age to come. The age to come is what the Old Testament prophets look forward to. The full and complete restoration of God's people. God's everlasting kingdom established by the Messiah. Isaiah speaks of the restoration of God's people as a new exodus. A deliverance from sin which climaxes in a new creation. That's Isaiah 65. He speaks of a new heavens and a new earth, that heavenly promised land. Now, when Jesus came into our world, he inaugurated the new creation. The coming of Jesus into our world signaled the beginning of the end. Jesus fulfilled all the promises of the Old Testament and he inaugurated the new covenant, bringing his people under his reign. And so the kingdom of God is already here. Our hearts have been made new by the spirit of the age to come, but the kingdom is not fully here in all its glory. We still await that day when Christ will return 
to judge the wicked, to judge Satan, to judge the Antichrist and his minions, and to give his people new resurrection bodies. And so we now live in the overlap of these two ages, namely the already but not yet. It is that period that is called the last days. Now if you look at the first horizontal line, the one depicting the seven, 70 weeks, you can see that in the last week, the 70th week, the Messiah comes and he makes atonement for the sins of the people. He does that midweek, which effectively divides that week schematically into three and a half and three and a half. And we now live on this side of the cross on the second three and a half. Now keep in mind, this is a schematic division. We have no idea how long it will be till Jesus returns. That division is meant to help us think theologically. Remember what a three and a half period uh, of time is supposed to remind us of. The days of Antiochus, therefore a period of tribulation. This period covers all of the last days. We see this even in Revelation 12, 14, another apocalyptic text. Again, remember we're dealing with imagery here. And so in Revelation 12, we are told of a woman who gives birth that woman represents the people of God. She gives birth to the Messiah. And when she does, Satan tries to devour the child, but doesn't succeed. Michael and his angels defeat the dragon and throw him down to earth. This happens at the cross when Jesus is, Jesus is victorious. And then the Messiah, the child, is taken up into heaven. Satan then goes after the woman, namely God's people. But God will preserve his people during this time of tribulation. And it will last for... Revelation 12, 14, time, times, and half a time. Three and a half years. Again, not literal years, but an indefinite period of tribulation between the first and the second coming of Christ. See, this covers the period that we know of as the last days. So you see that red arch between the two comings? The red arch. Another hint that this is a reference to an indefinite, vague period of time is to see how the New Testament refers to it using other terms. So sometimes it's referred to as the last hour. Oh, just an hour? You know it cannot possibly mean just an hour. That whole period of time is called the last hour. Paul in 1 Timothy 4, 1-2 calls it the later times. And he says some will depart from the faith in those times. Or 2 Timothy 3, 1. Paul says that the last days will be characterized by Times of difficulty and ungodliness will abound in those days. But then within those last days, when you get to the very end, we are told that there will be a time of unprecedented suffering. See, that's why that arch gets a little darker towards the end. There will be a time of unprecedented suffering. Not indefinite, but brief. And even that intense period of suffering under the Antichrist, right before Christ's return, is described by the angel using imagery from Israel's past suffering. Look at verse 11 of Daniel 12. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. You know, this description is meant to bring to our minds of the time Antiochus, stopped worship, when he sacrificed pigs on the altar, 
When he set up a statue of Zeus in the temple and made it desolate, no one was there. When the worship of the one true God was almost abolished and faithfulness to scripture was seen as a disease to be eradicated. His maniacal reign of terror lasted for three and a half years. And the angel says, this is how long it will last. 1,290 days. What's that? Roughly three and a half years. Again, it's not meant to give us a literal duration, but it's meant to tell us that it will be intense and brief. When Revelation 13.5 speaks of this particular time, John says that the beast will be given authority to persecute the saints for 42 months. What's that? It's just another way of saying three and a half years. It's a symbolic way of indicating a brief, limited, and intense period of suffering. Now, you might be thinking, but wait a minute. Didn't you just say that three and a half is a symbolic way of referring to all of the last days? Those are the days of tribulation? Yes, I did. It's a broad period of time between the two comings. But pastor, are you now saying that it's also a symbolic way of referring to a narrow period of time at the very end of time when the Antichrist appears? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Beloved, this is consistent with the pattern of scripture, with the pattern that we see in scripture. The, the already but not yet is characterized by tribulation. These are difficult days and the saints are being persecuted all around the world. It happened in the days of the apostles. It happened in different eras of church history. It came in spurts. It came in waves. It came in cycles. It comes in some places and not others. But then at the very end, there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been before. And such is the case with persecution, but it's also the case with persecutors. You see, in the last days there are what? Broadly speaking, many antichrists. But at the very end of time, you have the antichrist who will be revealed, who will exalt himself, oppose the saints, and proclaim himself to be God. Beloved, let your confidence be this, that God will come through for his people. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we need not fear evil, for he is with us. And at the end of our trials, we will receive our eternal blessing. Look at verse 12. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. Now what's this? So many numbers to deal with. See, 1,335 days is 45 days more than 1,290 days. And the best way to understand what's being communicated is this. 1,290 is that time when worship is stopped, the church is being persecuted, and faithfulness will come at an immense cost. But if you outlast that, if you cross that, you have endured. You have gone through and beyond that, and you are blessed. It's also possible because we see so much of new Exodus themes here, and we're thinking about restoration, and even the next verse talks about eternal inheritance. It's also possible that that 45 days to the Israelite mind uh, brought back memories of another famous Israelite from the tribe of Judah receiving his inheritance, Caleb. An entire 
chapter is dedicated to Caleb in Joshua chapter 14. And Caleb says, all these 45 years, you have taken care of me. And then he receives his inheritance. So 45 in the Israelite mind is a way of tracking time from the wilderness to your inheritance. It's a strange way of using numbers, but this is apocalyptic literature. It's just a way of stating that God's people, genuine believers, will outlast it all. They will endure to the end. Or as Hebrews 10, 39 puts it, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. See, the Lord will reward us with the fullness of everlasting resurrection life. Those who endure till the end will hear these words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. But even as Daniel is told of this blessing, this reward for the enduring saints of God, he is reminded of his blessed hope. Look at verse 13. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and stand, and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. You know, Daniel is told, go your way. Get up tomorrow, Daniel. Make your coffee. Read your Bible. Go to work. Serve your Persian boss. Be faithful where I have placed you. One day, this life will come to an end. And you will rest in your grave. But Daniel, your future is settled. You have nothing to worry about. You will rise from the dead and you will stand in your allotted place. Any Israelite reading that would have known what that meant. The allotment is a reference to land. You know, that portion of your inheritance, the promised land. Daniel will receive his heavenly inheritance and he will be home. Beloved, because of Christ, the Messiah that Daniel saw in his visions, Daniel will receive his heavenly inheritance and so will you and I if we endure faithfully till the end. Our heavenly father is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. He sets up kings and he brings them down. He is sovereign over all of history and by his providence he governs all things purposefully for the sake of his people. You know, despite what things may seem to us, uncertain days, hostile rulers, fluctuating politics, arrogant governments, societal pressures. Remember that our Father is on His throne. The battle has already been won at the cross and He is coming on the clouds to be glorified among His saints. What should you do till then? Go your way. Go your way and serve your Lord. Let His word dwell in you richly. And when the values of the kingdoms of this world collide with the values of his kingdom, pray boldly and stand defiantly in the face of evil. Remember, you have a blessed assurance and a blessed hope. Let's pray. Father, you are gracious and good to us. We praise you for your word that strengthens and sustains us. We praise you that in your word we get to see the glory of our Savior. And what a great and mighty Savior is he. Lord, we pray that you would banish cowardice and worldly wisdom from our hearts. 
that we may walk in the obedience of faith. May your people be rooted and grounded in our Savior's love so, the, so that we might rightly view our trials and endure faithfully till the very end. In Christ's name we pray.